An American tourist is enjoying a once-in-a-lifetime road trip through Italy. The further south he goes, there seems to be more poverty, more abandoned buildings, and an air of what he thinks is desperation and hopelessness. Just after he gets to Naples, he's beaten up and mugged for his wallet and phone. And not long after that, he has a brush with the dreaded local mafia. Felt as if the farther down he traveled, life just looked harder for people. It was as if the country had been divided long ago and had settled on extreme inequality. How was this allowed to happen? You might think we're exaggerating, but we'll convince you by the end of the show that the north and south of Italy are two different worlds. We don't mean to say that the south is any less beautiful or the people are any less friendly, but we will say, in terms of economics, something strange and frankly ugly has happened in Italy over many years, and today things are just as divided as ever. With a GDP of around $1.89 trillion in 2022, according to World Bank numbers, Italy is certainly a wealthy nation, the ninth wealthiest on the planet. It feels pretty rich if you visit places such as Milan, a mega city in its own right, where a sense of prosperity seems written into the very concrete of the buildings as you pass by. Milan is Italy's richest city. Sure, like any metropolis in the modern world, you can find poverty, crime, and homelessness. For instance, the neighborhoods of Giambellino and Laurenteggio look nothing like the glitz you can find elsewhere in Milan. Filth and desperation brand many streets in these two close-by neighborhoods. It's the dark underbelly Italy would rather prefer that tourists never see. But you'd struggle to find any wealthy city in the world that doesn't have pockets where a criminally wretched inequality is woven into the fabric of hardcore existence. Still, business is booming in cities like Milan. Prosperity is everywhere to see, despite the odd neighborhood looking like a remnant of the third world. But if you head down to the south, to what's referred to as the mezzogiorno, prosperity will feel like an alien word. Not everywhere, but in many places. We're generalizing, saying the north and south are totally different, but on the whole, there is a big difference. The glamour and conspicuous spending of Milan will feel like an alien world once you've seen some parts of the south. Of Italy's 60 million-plus population, 20 million, one-third, live in this half, comprising of Abruzzo, Apulia, Basilicata, Calabria, Campania, Molise, Sardinia, and a place you've all likely heard about, Sicily. On the whole, they have a lot less money, and in some regions, they hardly have any money at all. Despite what we've told you about Italy's wealth, some of these regions are the poorest regions in all of Europe. As we've said, it's as if someone decided long ago that this country should be split in half, with the haves living in the north, and the have-nots populating the south. Again, this is in general. There are super-rich folks living all over the Mezzogiorno. But this geographical economic divide is the real thing. As The Economist wrote in 2015, it's a tale of two economies. You can see the difference on paper. In 2018, the GDP per capita in the South was just 55.2% and 76.7% in the center and north's GDPs respectively. That's a massive difference. Unemployment rates were and still are way worse in the South, and reports on general well-being make the two parts of Italy look like different countries. Plenty of academic studies have been published as of late, and the divide those papers talk about is startling. It's a different world down there in the South with studies saying there were and still are vast differences when it comes to life expectancy, health, inequality, poverty, social capital, and market potential. It's a crisis that seems intractable. But it's not. Not really, if people in power did the right thing. It's gotten worse lately, though. As one recent paper explained, the COVID-19 crisis thus inserted itself into the context of an already widening gap between North and South. You can see the divide everywhere you go. You can see the inequalities in education, in the infrastructure, and in some of the faces of the people that can't find decent work. There's a quiet desperation and learned helplessness in many areas. 
which is the reason southern Italy has been seeing many of its inhabitants moving out and trying to find work in other countries. Others just moved to the north to find work. This diaspora movement has been going on for many years, which, as you'll see later, has devastating consequences. There are many young folks in southern Italy saying the same thing. There's nothing for me here. I'm leaving. The government doesn't give a damn about us. The South is still licking deep wounds from the 2008 financial crisis, while the North has pretty much made a full recovery. The South is still dealing with organized crime groups, such as the Camorra or the Sicilian Mafia, while the North usually weeds that kind of thing out. Don't think for a minute those mafias are dead and gone. They're alive and kicking the crap out of many regions in the South still today. Still, you might wonder why they exist in the first place, which is something important in this show today. We'll come back to that topic soon. You name it, the North has it. Large banking industry, some of the largest companies in Italy, massive chemical firms, and huge insurance outfits. The North has a healthy automotive industry and a bursting textile trade. It has higher-paying jobs. It has a population who've been educated far better than the average Southerner. When Southerners do get the best out of education, they usually skip northwards because there's not much they can do with a degree in their dusty hometowns. Statistically, the North has a much higher voter turnout. 21.9% more people graduate from a university in the North. Many people are working in high-tech jobs there. There are more kids in childcare, more broadband connections, and it's above average in terms of how many doctors per 1,000 people there are. These are all markers academics use to understand the quality of life. The numbers differ from each region of the South, of course, but the North-South polarity on the whole is evident all over the place. Before we get into the state of the current South, where our guy in the intro just had an introduction to some gangsters and lost his wallet to some street kids, we need to explain something about how this tale of two halves started. How did a country become divided through the middle? It wasn't always this divided. If you go back thousands of years, the South was renowned for its fertile soil and for the plentiful fish in the waters. When the ancient Greeks settled there, they had a bit of trouble at first with the natives, and they more or less worked things out. Much of southern Italy, not called Italy then, of course, flourished. At the time, the Romans up north actually called Sicily and other parts of the south Great Greece. Indeed, Neapolis, or Naples, became a powerhouse under the majestic Greeks. We won't go into the full history of the south because it's just too complicated. What we will say is that the Romans in the north had control of the south from time to time, but lost control now and again to foreign powers. For instance, for a long time it was Muslims that ruled Sicily under the Moors. The Byzantine Empire, the Islamic states, and the Normans all fought over areas of southern Italy as the Romans in the north were cementing their strength and building magnificent infrastructure. The south became fragmented, ruled by so many warring factions that the ground for centuries was covered in men's blood. In short, it didn't have the cohesion of the north. There wasn't a concentration of power like in the north. In the south, petty tyrants often ruled, making life incredibly difficult for the average person. They pretty much invented laws as they went along, and they exploited the poor at every opportunity. These people had only really known chaos, even when the Romans were in power. In the south, in the many years before the tyrants took over, they often planted their very wealthy people there to run slave plantations, latifundia. A type of latifundia existed in Sicily all the way until the 20th century, which you'll hear about soon. Under the Holy Roman Empire that followed centuries later, super-powerful states formed in the north such as those of Genoa, Venice, and Pisa, republics that were at the time the richest places in Europe. For centuries, the Holy Roman Empire was the most powerful political entity around, with trade creating many very wealthy people. We're talking nine centuries of rule here, a long time to create, invent, and build. Meanwhile, the south was a patchwork of small city-states, forever being fought over and not easy at all for the Holy Roman Empire to conquer. 
We're skipping great big chunks of history here, but we have to. We just want you to know that much of the north and the center of what we now call Italy was developing. The southern part was stuck in a cycle of regression. Even when Napoleon conquered the north and central parts of Italy, he didn't have direct rule over the whole south. In 1806, he dissolved the Holy Roman Empire and created the Kingdom of Italy with him as king. Then he annexed what was the Kingdom of Naples as part of the French Empire. Even though Napoleon wanted to develop this part of Italy, many of the people that lived in the south hated the French rule. They fought against it at times, and then they got what they wanted in 1815 when Napoleon fell from power. All those regions of the south were handed back to the previous rulers, but then chaos reigned once again. The south seemed to be stuck in some kind of eternal disaster, a groundhog's day of internal turmoil. The south never got very developed, in spite of Napoleon's intentions. It was always a land of the very rich and the very poor, with an educated middle class hardly ever existing at all. Moreover, its resources over the years had been overexploited, and that once fine, fertile land was not as great as it used to be. With repressive regimes running the roost and hardly any trading or a way to make a living, it was at least fertile ground for uprisings. Then in 1861, great changes took place under what Italians called the Risorgimento, or Resurrection. This was supposed to unify Italy. Lots of people in the north were not happy about joining up with the south. People they called barbaric and backward. After all, they said they'd been living in the past thinking like peasants while they'd been creating powerful states at the forefront of scientific discoveries. The Mezzogiorno, they said, we don't need. They said you can't modernize the south since it's too far behind, and by trying to do so, we will put way too much economic strain on the rest of Italy. It should be said that most of the bad things northerners said about the south were just plain falsities, such as calling people inherently lazy. This wasn't true, but such is the mentality of large mobs. Once Italy was unified, the north pretty much ignored it in regard to major political decisions. But be sure, the taxes kept being demanded, southerners struggled, with their soil now almost ruined, their forests heavily denuded, and unemployment rates sky-high as owners of vast estates lived lives of luxury. The more profitable estates were owned by the northerners, who would put people in charge of them while they were gone. Landless peasants worked on the plantations, so again, this looked like slavery. One thing Sicily had going for it was citrus fruits, which were a huge money spinner, especially after the British realized that they were great for dealing with every sailor's biggest worry, scurvy. Northerners owned pretty much all the agriculture, and the southern peasant farmers didn't have a pot to pee in, so again, there was a lot of disharmony. It all seemed the wealth was in a few hands, and those grasping fingers were all northern. On top of this, southern politicians were highly corrupt, as were the police. Italy might have been unified on paper, but it was as divided as ever. At the same time, the south was paying hefty taxes, but it seemed the development that could have happened with this money hardly ever went into the south. And so now, you have to ask yourself what happens when great swaths of people see no way out of the darkness. They rebel, is the answer. In southern Italy, what happened then was the beginning of a secret kind of organized crime. These criminals, mostly peasant farmers in the past, started extorting those who were looking after the landholdings. The plantation custodians were given an offer they couldn't refuse, and if they refused to pay, they were mowed down with shotguns. The criminals would shoot police if they investigated, but the police were often paid off. Word soon got back to the north that criminal activity under some mysterious organization was happening. This was the start of the Sicilian Mafia, although it took a long time to figure out anything about them because they were so secretive. These men of honor had rituals right from the start, but everything they did was a deep, hidden secret under a thick veil. It took decades for people to really understand there was a Mafia.
Famously, on February 1, 1893, after a man named Emanuele Nota Bartolo had taken notice of all this new crime and gone to investigate, he was stabbed 27 times as the train he was traveling on went through a tunnel. The death of this aristocrat is sometimes said to have been the first murder of an official by the Sicilian Mafia. First, second, third, it doesn't matter. What matters is the Mafia grew in size and strength, with their many ranks occupied by men who'd had enough of being peasants and had enough of watching the aristocrats get richer as their kids starved, and had had enough of politicians who were in fact just as criminal as anyone but hardly ever went to prison. Sounds like a romantic story, but the truth is when the Mafia got richer and had a good portion of politicians and other officials in their pockets, they didn't exactly concentrate on making the South a better place. Instead, they exploited people with their many rackets, including protection rackets. Many of these organizations popped up in the South, including the Sicilian Mafia, the Basiliski, the Camorra, the Nadrangheta, the Sacra Corona Unita, and more. These guys might have been a consequence of abject unfairness, but in more ways than one, they held back southern Italy from modernizing. They were like termites with guns, appearing anywhere and everywhere, and they were impossible to wipe out, despite many efforts. After World War II, Italy decided it was time to sink cash into the development of the South. But that money, under something called the Casa per il Mezzogiorno, never really went to the right places. Instead, much of it was stolen by corrupt politicians, while the Mafia took much of the rest. The initiative didn't end until 1993, but at that point, there'd already been many, many arrests relating to corruption. The cash was gone, and not much had changed in the South. Many people in the South said that unification was more of a curse than anything else. They'd have been better off under the feudal lords, they said. Which was arguably wrong. Still, what really had changed over the years? For the most part, they'd remained the agrarian poor, while those in the industrialized North lived lives completely different from theirs. Unified, maybe, but Italy was still two different nations. For years, through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, they struggled to find work, while the unemployment rate in the North was only a fraction of the South's. This was after about $2.6 billion had been invested in the South. As an anti-mafia official once pointed out, in the North, you see one factory per kilometer. Here you can travel for 100 kilometers and not see one chimney stack. He'd watched as roads were only ever half-built, as paid-for factories never opened, as promised hospitals were only ever partly finished, with money from the contracts most of the time filling the pockets of corrupt politicians and gangsters. It seemed the chaos the South had known for centuries was well and truly still there. Even now, people scratch their heads and ask why things haven't changed. Like us today, they blame historical foreign invasions, money-grubbing tyrants, and pervasive corruption which they say brought lawlessness to the South, and it's never been fully cleansed. Now don't get us wrong, there is some industry in the South. It has a thriving tourism industry since it is one of the most beautiful places in the world, but don't be fooled by the posh hotels and mansions in the mountains. Regular people's lives are often a constant struggle. We think an Italian archbishop got it right when he told the New York Times, here we have the culture of survival or the culture of tears. We are continuously crying, we fix problems as they come, but we don't plan ahead. If you know anything about trauma and poverty, you'll know that children who grow up among both often fail the famous marshmallow test. You're given a choice to take some marshmallows now or more marshmallows later. Rather than wait for more marshmallows later, poor kids almost always take a small amount now. It's the opposite of richer kids. They don't trust the future. They don't think about the future. It's easy to criticize people that live like this when you come from a privileged background, but it's not easy having confidence in the future when all you've ever known is struggle. You take what you can because tomorrow night it might not be there.
This is a problem in the South today, a lack of trust in governance. It can lead to a dog-eat-dog -dog existence and a sense of hopelessness. How can people build for the future when they have no faith at all in the authorities? When they know that when they get extorted by criminals, no one will ensure their life isn't taken if they report it. The South has been in a vicious cycle for centuries, and getting out of it will take a lot more than picking yourself up by your bootstraps. It's the same with class problems the world over. People should help themselves. But to kick things off, there needs to be some amount of top-down assistance. It's not happening in many parts of southern Italy, where official malfeasance and mafia rule make it really hard to get out of the traps of poverty. So when, as an American, you visit there today, you might meet the friendliest people you've ever met, have the best food, see amazing historical sites, and coastal azure waters that are so beautiful you want to cry. But don't be surprised if today's addicts, yesterday's peasants, relieve you of your iPhone in dollars, just as a mafia collection boy walks out of an extorted restaurant with a thick wad of cash in his hands. Inside, a wife and husband embrace and cry and wonder why no one can stop this from happening. As that anti-mafia guy said, if you were to go into some of our smaller villages here, you would find yourself immersed in the Middle Ages. Some of these problems are systemic, and they have been for centuries. Save yourself if you can get out, is what many Southerners say, which is why over the last few years and decades before, rural towns and villages have been profoundly depopulated, leading to the so-called Southern brain drain. Now some of these places are like ghost towns, where the aged mill around like relics in a living museum, eminently Instagrammable for tourists that photograph them, but eternally down on their luck, so not exactly thrilled at being gawked at and filmed. This was brilliantly portrayed in the TV show White Lotus Season 2. Fiction? Maybe. But pretty close to the truth. Now you really need to hear more about those old-school mafias and the killing methods in Sicilian mafia families. Or have a look at how the Great Mafia War killed thousands.